morning. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Turn to Matthew chapter 5, first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5, start of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. As well, in your bulletin, um, I don't normally do uh, a lot of fill-in-the-blanks, but today it just seemed to fit. So uh, you'll need your bulletin insert, you'll need a pen, you need your Bible. Go ahead and grab those, and while you're turning and getting all that stuff, let me uh, share a little bit of exciting news in my family. Um, my uh, wife's brother, Dave, and his wife, Katie, have been expecting twins. Um, they have a two-year-old little girl already, and they were pregnant with twin girls, and so their house is about to get very interesting. Um, and we got the call last night about 9.30 that they uh, were going into labor to the hospital. And this morning, my two twin nieces were born. And uh, Karen's on her way up to Chicago right now to help out and uh, just be a part of the family and celebration there. So uh, if you would, just uh, pray for uh, the family as they make that transition into from one house, uh, one child household into three um, overnight. And uh, it's going to be quite an interesting household for a while. Um, Eleanor Grace... And Ryan, I can't remember the middle name of the second one, I'm sorry. Um, six pounds, four ounces on Eleanor, seven pounds, four ounces on Ryan. So, I mean, you can imagine my sister-in-law, she's been excited to get these babies out. So, you got Matthew chapter 5 ready, you got your pens ready. Uh, we're going to teach some stuff here, we're going to fill in the blank. This is not going to be kind of a typical sermon. I'm not going to jump up and down, get all... You're running back and forth and throwing things at you. Um, this is a word study this morning because this word that we're going to study is so often misunderstood. And so I need to just spend about 30 minutes defining it for you so that you understand it. Um, but as Bill said this morning, we've been in this series called The Pursuit of Happiness. And we're going through these things called the Beatitudes, which are, are words of wisdom that Jesus starts one of his, uh, his preeminent sermons with. And if you look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, two weeks ago, Bill taught on blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in a nutshell, being poor in spirit means that you recognize that you are spiritually poor, that you can do nothing to gain the favor of God, and that you have to completely surrender yourself to God. Uh, so many other world religions are all about what you can do, when in reality Christ has already done it for us. There's nothing we can do. And that's what it means to be spiritually poor, to recognize that uh, in your life. Last week he taught him, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And there's really two uh, different definitions for the word mourn there. One is mourning over our sin, recognizing that in the face of an almighty God that we are sinful beings, and so we recognize that and we mourn over our sin. And then also the fact that when we mourn, we do have a God that can comfort us in those times of need. This morning we're talking about blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, Matthew 5.5. 5. And uh, that word meek is the one that we're going to redefine for you this morning. Uh, meek, I, I'm just going to jump right in. The Greek word for meek is the Greek word praus, praus, P-R-A-U-S. And it's a very difficult word to translate in English. There's not a really one single English word that defines it as the Greek uh, language intended it to. Most often it's translated in our English translations of the Bible as gentle or humble. Gentle or humble. And so we read that blessed are the meek, blessed are the humble, blessed are the gentle. Uh, we see this, this word used in a couple different New Testament letters. If you go to uh, Galatians, uh, we'll see that there. Flip there. We'll have it on the screen for you here in just a second. Looks like I forgot to tag this one in my Bible. Hold on a second. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. There's the Greek word praotes, uh, which is our, our Greek word for meek. 
uh, and self-control. You go to Ephesians uh, chapter uh, 4, verse 2, and we see here written, Be completely humble and gentle, praotes, the Greek word for meek. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Go to Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, and we read this. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness. There's the Greek word again, praotes, and patience. At the risk of being misunderstood, let me share with you that men struggle with these verses. Let's just be honest. If you're a guy here today and you read these verses, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Ephesians 4, you know, clothe yourselves, or Colossians here, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. As men, because this does this to me, I read these verses and I go, that doesn't speak to my manhood. Okay? I'm, I'm just being honest. When I think about me being a man, I don't think about being compassionate and kindness and humble and gentle. Those aren't natural traits in my life, uh, which maybe is why God says they need to be. But I, I, don't, I don't look at this word. And so when I read, blessed are the meek, blessed are the, the humble and the gentle, to me, meek is, is not a manly word. And I'm going, why in the world would I want to be meek? It almost portrays that there's this, again, at the risk of being misunderstood, this neutered faith that, that we want our men to become more gentle in spirit. That we're to sacrifice what makes us men, the, the, the energy and the power that rises up within us. You know, when, when we're faced with an enemy or faced with a tough situation, I mean, we don't approach it most often with gentleness and patience and humbleness. That's not our, our initial nature. We like verses like uh, uh, 1 Corinthians sixteen thirteen. as men. We like this one. Be on your guard. Stand firm. Stand firm in the faith. Be men of courage. Be strong. That speaks to manhood. When I read that, I go, yeah. You know, Paul, you got it. Jesus, he didn't understand it. Blessed are the meek. What? No way. I, I'm not going to be meek. And yet, here's the problem. In our English language, we translate meekness as what? Weakness. Meekness is not weakness. Christ himself called himself uh, meek. He says here in Matthew 11, chapter 29, uh, we have it on the screen here for you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle, I'm meek, and I'm humble in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. And yet, this is the same guy that one day walked into the temple and saw the money changers taking advantage of the people of God. And he makes this whip and he drives out the money changers. Now, I don't want you to think that, that he just walked over here and there was a whip hanging on the wall, okay? Because text tells us that Jesus went over and he made a whip. Have you guys ever braided rope before? You ever made rope? You ever made a whip? I mean, it is a time-consuming process. And you can just picture Jesus over here. I mean, he's sitting over here with this rope. He's like whipping this whip together. He's just stewing because he knows what these people are doing to, to God's people. <clears throat> and the disciples are going, what's going on with Jesus? What are you doing, Jesus? Oh, you know what I'm about to do. You know, oh, man, you don't even want to know. And, and he stands up and he cracks his whip over the heads of the money changers. And he drives them out. And this is a guy who calls himself meek? And we think that's weakness? Moses in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, was called the most meek man on earth. He was more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Moses was meek. Was he weak? 
When he came down from the mountain with the first set of the Ten Commandments, he saw the people worshiping the golden calf. What did he call for? He called for the slaughter of 3,000 people who bowed down to the golden calf. That's weakness? Maybe we've got to redefine what it means to be meek. Maybe our English language isn't the best translation of that word. Sir Thomas Mallory uh, wrote the preeminent work on the legend of King Arthur, uh, Le Morte de Arthur. He writes this about King Arthur. Thou were the meekest man and the gentlest that ever ate in hall among ladies. Like, okay, well, that works for our, our initial definition of meek, you know, when we think about it as being gentle in spirit and humble. But then he goes on, he says, And thou were the sternest knight to thy mortal foe that ever put spear in the rest. Balance that out. Here is King Arthur. Here is Moses. Here is Jesus, who is humble and gentle in spirit and, and mild-mannered when appropriate. And then when it's called for, they rise up. They crack whips over people's heads. They call for the slaughter of people. They put spears through people. What are we to do with this tension? How are we supposed to understand what it means to be meek? Well, I'm going to explain that the rest of my time with you this morning. Uh, in your notes, you have kind of three side-by-side blocks there. And because to get a true understanding of the Greek word praus, meek, we have to understand that there's three kind of equal side-by-side definitions that we have to blend them together to understand what this Greek word meek means. So let me give you these three definitions. Definition number one, righteous anger. Righteous anger. The, the idea of meekness was one of the core virtues in the Greek culture back in the day. Um, it, w- it was a core ethic that, that Greeks called men and women to live by. Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, he, he explained his core virtues, these ethic values, uh, as kind of the, the middle ground, the mean between too much of something and too little of something. Uh, for example, uh, as he defined the, the virtue of courage, he said it's, it's the middle ground between cowardice and foolhardiness. Courage is the middle ground between being a coward, not having enough courage, and foolhardiness, being completely idiotic and running in situations you should not be running into in the name of courage. And he says true courage is the middle ground between cowardice and foolhardiness. Generosity, he said, was the middle ground between stinginess and wastefulness. Between um, penny-pinching all of your money and never doing anything good with your money, never being generous with it, uh, to being wasteful over here and spending it all on frivolous, pointless things. And he said, if you want to understand generosity, it's the middle ground between stinginess and wastefulness. And so then he approaches meekness. He said, if you want to understand meekness, it's the middle ground between too little anger and too much anger. There's times in life uh, when, when we have these moments of, of too little anger and we shouldn't be rising up. Like Jesus and Moses and King Arthur, we should be rising up. And then there's other moments over here where we rise up and, and we're not supposed to. We're not supposed to stand up and, and, and have anger in that moment. Meekness is the middle ground between too much anger and too little anger. Proverbs chapter 29 verse 11 puts it this way. A fool gives full vent to his anger. But a wise man keeps himself under control. A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. Let me redefine Matthew 5 5 for you here. Let me give you a new definition for blessed are the meek. All right, here it is. Blessed is the man who is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. Blessed is the man who's always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. 
Now, if you're like me, you're asking yourself, when is the right time and when is the wrong time? When is it right to be angry and when is it not right to be angry? And I think scriptures point that out fairly clearly for us. If there's a a wrong or an injustice that is done to us, we forgive. We show grace. We show mercy. We don't respond in anger. But if there's a right, if there's an injustice, um, or if there, there's something that's done, uh, an injury and an insult that's done to others, and, and they're, they're, they're being taken advantage of, there's a lock, lack of justice on, the, on the, the person who's doing that to those people, then we have a right, Scripture says, to stand up and defend those who can't defend themselves, to take care of the weak and, and take care of those who can't protect themselves. We, we, we forgive when it's done to us. We rise up when it's done to other people. And Jesus says, turn the other cheek. You slap me, I'll turn my other cheek. You slap my wife, there's going to be a world of hurt. Just being honest. You don't go up against my wife. I'll turn my cheek, but don't go up against my wife or my kids. I, I remember my previous church, we had a guy that, that he and his wife helped start the church. I mean, just to give me an idea, I mean, they were great people, um, you know, Christians who loved God and loved people and wanted to see a new church planted up in the Chicagoland area. And so they were part of a core 12, 14 people that, that met and prayed. And they started this church, you know, years and years, decades before I got there. But over time, the husband became this very bitter and contentious person. I mean, every meeting we had in a leadership meeting, he would rise up. He wasn't, at that point, he wasn't a leader in the church, but he was there. And he, he'd always have something negative to say. Always have this point of contention with the leadership. Never would support the leadership. Always disagreed with us. And even over, you know, trivial, mundane things. And I remember one time, it got so bad to the point that, that the eldership was doing a study on biblical discipline. How do you discipline somebody as a church? They wanted to make sure they had it right before they went and confronted this guy. And so I walk into the office one morning, <clears throat> and I see this guy who has taken mail out of a mailbox that wasn't his, that was the, the in-depth study on church discipline and was making copies of it for himself and for other people. And I saw it, but I, was, I, I, didn't, I wasn't sure. And so I, I, I thought that's what it was, but I just didn't know. So I didn't confront him there. But later on that day, I'm like, you know what? That's, that's got to be what that was. And so I knew I, hadn't, I had to go to him. So I went to his house Monday afternoon, knocked on his door. He knew I was there. And I just asked him, I said, hey, Yesterday morning, I, I saw you making some copies of something. And I said, was it this? And I held up the, the study, the paper on, on church discipline. I mean, it, it was written for and about him, how we were going to handle this guy. And he said, yeah, I did. And I distributed it out to about 30 other families in the church. And I, I stood there, and I, I just I was dumbfounded. And I'm like, why would you do that? And he, I mean, that was an open invitation. I knew going to his house, that was an open invitation uh, for a really bad situation. And I had to stand there for 30 minutes while he yelled at me, railed up and down at me. I mean, at the church, at the leadership of the church, he called me a liar, a manipulator. He pointed out these things he said I did wrong. And I, I, honestly, I, I mean, I prayed over this conversation. I had friends and accountability partners that were praying for this conversation. And I just literally stood there. I don't know how I controlled my anger, honestly. Because he was calling me things I hadn't been called in a long, long time. But it was in this moment, as I, I studied meekness, that God took me back to that moment. That was an injustice to me. That was an assault on me. And God would call me to be meek and to just say, you know what, don't respond with too much anger. Now I'll contrast that. When I was in high school, I was at the local pizza hut. 
And some friends and I were, were having dinner there, and as we left, we walked out in the parking lot, and there was a group of high school football players. I was, one, I was a, a high schooler, but not a football player, and, and uh, they were there. And one of the guys was slapping his girlfriend around in the parking lot of the Pizza Hut. And his buddies were just laughing. And I went, oh, no. No, I don't think so. Not on my watch. And I started storming across the parking lot. And we got about, about almost there, and my friends pulled me back. But he saw me, and he knew I was coming for him. Because I'm like, you do not do that to a girl. There is no way. And I think in that moment, I had righteous anger. Meekness is the middle ground between too little anger and too much anger. If it's an injustice done to you, you don't respond with anger. If it's an injustice done to somebody else, you can up, rise up appropriately with righteous anger, with righteous indignation. So that's the first definition, righteous anger. Second definition for meekness, restrained power. Restrained power. The word praus in the Greek use uh, was used to refer to an animal that's been domesticated, uh, such as a horse that that had been broken and brought under control. And the owner of the horse could could put a saddle on, could put a bit in the mouth, and, and, and they could control the horse, tell it which way to go. Uh, and they had control over that. It would respond to a, a word of command or, or a soft tug on the reins. That word, that animal, even though he had power and this physical ability, I mean, you've seen horses, they're majestic animals. They have all this power, and yet you put a bit in their mouth, and you, you've broken them, and you have control over them. That animal is now meek. That's the, the, one of the core essence of this Greek word meek. Um, I kind of wish my cats were that way. I have friends who have dogs, and they like will sit and roll over and beg and do all this stuff that you want a dog to do. Uh, my cats, no, not so much. Um, I love my cats, but sometimes I want to pun them. Um, just being honest, I, I've, got, I've got one cat that as soon as somebody gets up from the dinner table, uh, that cat's up on the chair and noses in the plate and starting to lick. I mean, he's just right there in front of the rest of us. It's doing this. Uh, I've got one cat that sleeps on Karen's face. I don't know how she does it. She's just like, the cat's like right there. And you know, if that was me, I'd throw across the room. I've got one cat. I, I don't understand why this cat does this. Every time it goes to the litter box, it goes over to its water bowl and it washes its feet in the water bowl. It's like washing its hands after it goes to the bathroom. And water is just sprayed all over the floor. I wish my cats were meek, but they're just not. And until they're gone, I'll, I'll accept that. So meekness, as the Greeks would define it, as Jesus would have used it here, is learning to accept control of our lives from God. Learning to accept control of our lives from God. You've heard Bill talk about this, this concept of having a biblical worldview, of looking at everything we do and everything we, we say and every response we have and, and every conversation and every situation in, in our homes and our, our workplaces and our neighborhoods and our church, looking at all of it through the filter of, 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 the, of the Bible and of God's teachings. And we begin to look at the world a little bit differently. And we look at how we're to respond in situations. And our first thing is, how would the scriptures have me respond? We look at decisions we make with our money and our home and our lives. And we say, what would God and the scriptures say to do that? John 14, verses 23 and 24 say this. Jesus is teaching. He says, if anyone loves me, he'll obey my teaching. My Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. That's the essence of a biblical worldview. Accepting control of our lives from God rather than maintaining control of ourselves. Uh, Proverbs 16, verse 32 says this. Better a patient man than a warrior. This is another good verse for guys. Better a patient man than a warrior. A man who controls his temper than one who takes the city. We have the power 
to overtake the city. We have the power to rise up. We have the, the right at times to do that. And yet there's times where God calls us to be meek and to hold back that power, to restrain ourselves in the name of Christ and in the name of a biblical worldview. Uh, we may have something that, that comes up against us, and we, when we read the Scriptures, we set aside our natural response, and we accept the biblical response. So let me redefine blessed are the meek again for you. Blessed is the man who has every instinct, every impulse, every passion under control. Blessed is a man who is entirely self-controlled. And as soon as you write the word self, cross it out and write the word God underneath that. Blessed is the man who is completely God-controlled. Who in every impulse, every situation, every action, every response, the first thought is not how is my natural self respond. How would God have me respond? Restrain our power. That's the essence of meekness. I, I think the, the most meek person I've seen in, in, in current day is Mr. Miyagi. You remember Mr. Miyagi? You know, not the new one, not Jackie Chan, uh, but, you know, the other guy, the, 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 old, the old Mr. You know, Miyagi, the karate kid. I, I was in Atlanta last week, and I was at the church leadership conference, and one of the speakers, I, sorry, this is a tangent, one of the speakers was Francis Chan. You've heard Bill talk about him, me talk about him, uh, wrote the book Crazy Love and the Forgotten God. Great speaker, great motivator. So I'm, I'm, I'm putting it on Facebook. You know, Francis Chan is, is teaching this incredible, and my wife puts on there, we're watching Jackie Chan and Karate Kid. Is that the same? No, 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 that's not the same. But I think Mr. Miyagi, the classic Mr. Miyagi, is the essence of restrained power. If you remember him, he, he was a small man, but he had incredible power, incredible ability. And I want you to see the closing scene of the, the, the original Karate Kid. Hey, come on, that's not fair. I got second place. Second place? Second place is no place. You're off the team. That sucks. I did my best. What did you say? I said I did my best. You're nothing. You lost. You're a loser. No, you're the loser, man. Oh, I'm the loser, huh? Yeah. Now who's a loser? You know, you're really sick, man. Hey! Hey, come on! Hey! Don't! Going? How does second place feel now, huh? Come on, he can't breathe! Mind your business! You're gonna kill him! Sensei, please, you're hurting him! He's sorry, okay? He really is! Wait! Let him go! Yeah, this is right! Let him go! I say, let him go! Beat it, Slope, or you're next. face you, he is enemy. Enemy deserve no mercy. Daniel-san, ladies no wait forever. You could have killed him, couldn't you? I... Well, why didn't you then? Because, Daniel-san, for person with no forgiveness in heart, 
living even worse punishment than death. Restrained power. Mr. Miyagi literally had power over life and death in that moment. And the guy knew it. I mean, you saw it in his eyes. Danielson knew it. He's, you know, and, and he's sitting there going, I know Mr. Miyagi, but he's about to do something I didn't think he would ever do. And Mr. Miyagi had power in that moment, and he restrained that power, pulled that power back. See, this is where it's, it gets really difficult, because even in those moments where we have righteous anger, I mean, you saw him take it, go into action when an injustice was being done to another individual. And yet, even in his anger, he restrained his power. And there's a delicate balance here in meekness between righteous anger and restrained power. It's, it's an interesting dance that we're to follow. So what does this mean for us today? Um, because most of us are not black belts. Most of us are never going to be in a situation where we have to, you know, go into a dark alley and, and protect somebody from the weak but, or from the strong. But, but in reality, some of you guys are employers. And you have power over your employees. How do you treat them? How do you exercise your power? Is it based on biblical teaching? Or is it based on your own skewed view of the world? Is it based on what, how Christ would have you interact and, and lead those people? Or is it based on what culture has taught you and what you've always done in history? Parents, you have power over your children. How do you exercise that power? Do you do it appropriately? Do you follow a biblical worldview? Do you parent according to what Scripture teaches? Or do you do it how the world teaches? And do you do it how it, how it feels in the moment? I mean, I'm a parent. I've got two kids, and there's a lot of moments where I want to respond in one way, and I know it's not the way that, that Christ would have me respond. But I have power over my children. We all have power over somebody in our lives. What do you do with that power? How do you control that power? How do you utilize that power over the people you have influence with? You've got you to study that yourself. That's the question of restrained power. Third definition, and this enters in more into this balance here we've got, this delicate dance of, of understanding meekness. Uh, true humility is the third definition. True humility. And this is probably the one that's most often taught on the definition of, of meekness. Blessed are the meek. Most of the time people go here first. They're like, it means to be humble before God. And you're absolutely right, it does. Uh, the Greeks always contrasted meekness with lofty heartedness. Humility with pride. It's very rare that you see meekness and humility not side by side. They're typically paired together. There's this idea that we're to be meek and to humble ourselves, not to be prideful and lofty hearted. Uh, Quintilian, the Roman teacher of oratory, once said of certain students, uh, they'd no doubt be excellent students if they were not already convinced of their own knowledge. I, I remember working for a friend of mine. Uh, his mom was renovating her home into a restaurant, and she hired him and I, we were 18 years old, to work. And you know, sitting at her, her kitchen one day having lunch, and there on the wall was this plaque that said, hire a teenager while they still know everything. <laughs> Meekness is recognizing our proper place in the world. Meekness is recognizing our proper place in the world. I think there's no better illustration of this than Job. Remember the story of Job? Job had everything taken away from him. Family, home, money, friends, all this stuff. And, 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 and he's got these guys that come alongside him, and they start to have this, this discourse and talk about, you know, why would this happen to you, and what, what's God punishing you for? God's not punishing me for anything. And, and over time, Job begins to go, you know what, what have I done? What, what have I done wrong to deserve this? I mean, I, I took care of the, the widows and the homeless. I, I took care of them. I, I never treated anybody poorly. I never lied to anybody. I never cheated anybody in my business dealings. What have I done wrong, God? Why are you doing this to me? And I love God's response in Job 38. He, he basically, here's Job, and he's being mostly respectful in his questioning of God, but, but God comes to Job and he says this, Who is this that darkens my counsel without words of, with words without knowledge? 
Brace yourself like a man. I'll question you. You shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footing set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and I wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said, this far you may come and no further. Here's where your proud waves halt. Where were you, Job, when I made the universe? Where were you, Job, when I created the earth and the continents and the oceans? Where were you, Job, when I created all the animals of the earth and the fish of the sea and the birds of the air? Job, where were you when I created you? You think it's right? Stand there like that and go, what have I done wrong? Don't you realize that I'm in control of even you? And if I want to do something with you, I'm going to do it regardless of of what you think about it? Where were you, Job? What gives you the right? And Job responds, chapter 40, bows down before God and says, you're right, God. I spoke of things that I don't understand. You're God. I'm Job. I'm going to understand that the rest of my life. True humility is understanding our proper place in the world. Here's a new definition for blessed are the meek. Blessed is the man who has the humility to know his own ignorance, his own weakness, and his own need. His own ignorance, his own weakness, in his own need. James chapter 4, verse 6. Uh, James quotes Proverbs uh, 3, verse 34. says this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. A few weeks ago, I got invited to speak to uh, Youth for Christ. Uh, they have a gathering every Friday morning, and, and uh, it's a number of athletes at Metamora High School, and they get together and they have a time of worship and teaching and, and a connection there before school starts on Friday morning. Great, great program, great environment. And so they asked me to speak, and I'm, I'm like, okay, what am I going to speak on? Well, I just, I just ran the marathon. I'm like, maybe I'll talk about that, endurance and all that. And so as I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure this out, and all of a sudden, God just kind of lands this thing in my lap, and he says, talk about humility in the face of success. Because what do we know about metamorph football? We're pretty successful. We are. It, it, I've said this before. It's kind of rare to live in a town where we have a, a winning football team. My football team couldn't spell championship, okay? We didn't know what that was. And so I sat with these high school kids, and I, I said, what are you good at? Let's talk about it. Let's brag about each other a little bit. And, and it was really neat how it happened because they didn't want to start talking about themselves, but they started talking about other people. You know, well, Brian's really good at this, and Lisa's really good. It was really kind of a cool moment. And, and I went into this, and I said, you know, it's not bad to be good at things. It's not bad to be successful. But how do you handle that success? How do you respond to that success? And we talked about humility in the face of success, that you don't flaunt that success in the face of your opponents. You don't, you don't rub it in. I mean, you cheer on good plays for the opposing team. Um, I, I sat outside yesterday and, and watched my kids play soccer for most of the morning, and, and I love sitting there and, and cheering on both teams. You know, I, I love it when my kid does something that's great, but I cheer on a good play from the opposing team too. If the goalie makes a good block on the, on the soccer, I'll, I'll shout it out. I'm like, good block, goalie. Somebody makes a good drive, even on my kid, and they score on my kid. And I'm like, Ethan, you know, nice try. Hey, great shot, you know, Isaiah. Cheer him on. How do you handle that success? It's not wrong to be successful. In fact, many of you are successful. You have successful careers. You have successful uh, home lives. You have successful lives. I mean, somebody looked at your life from the outside. They say, this, this guy, this gal's got it all together. They're pretty successful. And the question is, what do you do with that? What do you do with that success? Do you start to own that success? You say, yeah, I am successful. 
You know, I got this great paying job because I put in the work, I put in the effort, I went to school, I worked hard, I worked late, um, did everything the boss asked me to do and even more. I, it's just, yeah, I did all of this. And then God taps you on the shoulder and says, who gave you the ability to do that? Who gave you the personality and the drive to do that? And you start to look at your life as a, a mother or a father, and you say, you know, I'm pretty good as a father. I'm pretty good as a mother. I love my kids. I mean, I, I, I keep control of them. We discipline them. But, you know, there's just, I'm helping nurture them and, and grow into, you know, good, strong, moral young men and women. And you start to go, man, I'm pretty good at this parenting thing. And God taps you on the shoulder and says, who gave you a heart for your kids? Who gave you those kids? What do we do with success? If we're to be meek, then we embrace true humility. One of my favorite verses, it's kind of a core verse mantra for me, if you will. Romans 12, 3. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. It's something that whenever I start to, to think more of myself, when I start to get a big head, um, in addition to my wife deflating me and keeping me real, uh, which is always good, this verse pops into my head. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. It's been said that, that Roman generals would come into town uh, after a, a victorious battle and there were some of them that would, would hire a slave to ride in the chariot behind him. And as he got all these accolades and, and everything's being praised down on this Roman general, this emperor, this slave, he was paid to whisper in his ear, you're just a man. You're just a man. So what does it mean to be meek? It means to enter into this, this balance of righteous anger and restrained power and true humility. And if you want a really long redefinition of blessed are the meek, a rather short verse, here you go. Blessed is the man who is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time, who has every instinct, every impulse, every passion under control, who is entirely self-controlled, who has the humility to know his own ignorance, his own weakness, and his own needs. Study that for a while. Embrace that this week. Live out those virtues this week. And I want to challenge you to do that. Take your notes. Look at your life. Are there areas where, where I rise up in anger? Is it too much anger? Is it too little anger? Is there areas where I need to be rising up and, and defending the, the, the weak and the, those who can't take care of themselves? Are there times where, where my natural instinct is to rise up and control a situation and to, to um, overpower somebody? And maybe I need to pull that back because that's not honoring God with my power and my influence. Are there times in life where I start to take credit for too much? My head gets a little too big. My ego gets a little ahead of myself. And we've got to remember, you know what? God is the one. It's not about us. It's about Him. What am I doing to bring honor and glory to Him? And do I understand that He's God and I'm not? That's my challenge for you this week. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakscc.org.